Well, good morning, New Hope. Great to be with you here this morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Gary Post. I'm the associate pastor here. And Mark Kring, the senior pastor, is away this weekend on a little vacation. Uh, he was able to assemble his whole family, uh, even the ones that live some distance away, and, and they were able to rent a place up in Elk Rapids and spend the week together as a family. He got to meet his, uh, his newest grandson, Davis, who's only six months old, and that he hadn't met before. So it, it's a fun time for the, the whole family. So expect to see some sunburn when he gets back. And I want you to be sure to tell him, too, that I used at least two Greek words in this message today. <laughs> He'll appreciate that. We're going to be talking about community today and what it means to be a New Testament community, what that looks like, uh, how, how we live together in a New Testament community, and, and how that happened in the early church as well, and uh, what we can learn from that, and what next steps we can take as a, as a body of Christ here uh, in order to realize that same kind of oikos or, or New Testament community. That's not yogurt, by the way. We'll, we'll talk about that. Um, let's pray together before we begin. Dear Father... Thank you for this time. I thank you for these folks and their desire to know you more and to walk with you more closely and to have that intimate fellowship with you that we're going to talk about today. And Lord, I ask that you bless this time. We know that nothing of any eternal value will happen here outside your Holy Spirit. So we ask you to pour out your Spirit on this place and, uh, and uh, empower my, my uh, efforts to communicate your word and, and, and empower those who attend and those who hear, uh, that uh, you would, uh, through your Holy Spirit's power, tra- transform us further into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. And, and we ask these things in his precious name. Amen. Well, it seems that uh, so many are in a, a search for community and uh, whatever that means to them. How many of you remember the sitcom that was on for a number of years called uh, Cheers? Maybe I'm dating myself, yeah. Uh, some remember it. It was actually on from 1982 to 1993. It was on for 11 years. It was actually set in a, at the setting, if you remember, was a bar in Boston called Cheers, and uh, the bartender there was Sam Malone. He dispensed advice, and, and uh, there were quite a collection of characters uh, there with him in that bar, and the... the, the uh, the story was all about their activities together and, uh, and uh, doing, doing life together in that bar. But uh, the reason I, I bring it to mind is because uh, of the, the way that their uh, tagline spoke to, to community. And some of you may remember that the, the tagline and, in fact, the title of the theme song was Where Everybody Knows Your Name. Where Everybody Knows Your Name. And uh, the lyrics of the song, some of you will, be, will find it irresistible to, uh, to hum along while, while, I'm, while I'm sharing with you these lyrics, but, uh, but I think they say a lot about what people are looking for in community. Uh, they go like this, making your way in the world today takes everything you've got. Taking a break from all your worries sure would help a lot. Wouldn't you like to get away? Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name, and they're always glad you came. You want to be where you can see our troubles are all the same. You want to be where everybody knows your name. And I think that speaks to the universal human desire that we all have to be known 
to be understood, to be accepted, to be loved, and to have a place where we can go, where all those things are true for us. And yet, uh, it seems that loneliness and isolation are, are kind of the, the epidemic of our time, if you will. So many have observed that. There was an older couple, um, I say older, they're about my age, so uh, a couple of years ago here at one of our connection lunches, and I was asking him, as I usually do uh, after the service, well, what drew you here to New Hope? And and they said, well, frankly, you know, they didn't make any bones about it. They said, you know, we're not, uh, we're not particularly religious, but um, the, the, uh, guy, the guy said to me, you know, we're here for a community. You know, church is one of the few places where you can kind of uh, come together with other people and find a, a sense of, of community. And, and so they were here for that. And they were here for a number of months, and, and then I think they, the last I heard, they, uh, they bought a motorhome together, and they're traveling around the country. So we, we haven't seen them sense. But it was interesting that uh, in spite of the fact they weren't looking for a church, they were looking for a community, and, um, and they wound up here. You see, in, in spite of technology's promise uh, to draw us closer together, keep us all connected, that, that hasn't happened. Uh, uh, loneliness and, and isolation are still epidemic. Dr. Stephen Alardi, in the book The Depression Cure, he's a psychologist who treats many uh, who uh, struggle with depression and, and he thinks that uh, that loneliness and isolation is a significant factor in the prevalence of depression. He says, compared with our counterparts from even a generation ago, we're much less likely to know our neighbors, to invite friends over for dinner, to join social clubs, to participate in a local church or synagogue or mosque, or to take part in community sports leagues, bowling, softball, tennis, and so on. We're less likely to get married, less likely to stay married when we do take the plunge. We also spend less time developing and maintaining friendships. According to a recent landmark study of American social life, half of all adults lack even a single close friend that they can rely on. That's kind of sad, isn't it? Yeah. So connected and yet so lonely. Many search for a community in their workplace through professional associations, through affiliations with a a sports team or a community group, uh, some uh, through a sports team, for example, they'll affiliate with a, a college or, or a college team like MSU. Go green, right? Yeah. Now, now if you're a U of M fan, you, you may have a, a good reason to be depressed. <laughs> Come on, just kidding. My point is that people are trying to find a, a connection, a, a human connection, and, uh, and to alleviate loneliness and, and and, you know, to, to find some, some way to connect with meaning and, and purpose for their lives. And so they're searching out community. Well, what's biblical community? We, say that, we like to say that New Hope is a biblical community. Well, what does that mean? How is a biblical community distinctive from other kinds of communities? That's what we're going to talk about today. And let's, let's read about it to begin with in, uh, in Acts 2. Acts 2, 42 through 47, just six verses. And what we're reading about is, is a description of the New Testament church and, and how they interacted together in the first century. Acts 2, 42 through 47. I'm going to be reading out of the English Standard Version, same version in the pews, same version on the screen. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, 
and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Koinonia is uh, what we've just had described to us there. That's the Greek word that in in verse 42 is is translated as fellowship. But uh, in literal terms, koinonia means, the the Greek word means uh, sharing a common life. Sharing a common life. The closest concept that we have to koinonia in Greek and uh, English is probably community. That's what sums up koinonia most closely in English. But the apostles actually used the word koinonia or some grammatical variation of koinonia to mean fellowship, uh, partnership, sharing, communion, community, participation. All all those things, depending on the context, uh, were all uh, a variation of, of koinonia. The Greek word uh, in, in 42 is translated as, as fellowship, but I want to show you something about that uh, because there, it's, a, it's an, in, um, an illustration of uh, the power of words and how much one word can mean. In the, the New American Standard Version, that uh, phrase is translated, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and, and to fellowship, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and, and of prayer. When you, when you see the phrase to fellowship, what does that bring to mind for you? To fellowship. This is the audience participation portion. <laughs> I'm sorry? Action. A- action. Exactly. Action, activi- activities. Fun, food. There's always food at New Hope, isn't there? Yeah. It's got to be food. What else? Conversation. Conversation. Okay. Um, you're right. It's all about activities, isn't it? Now, when, when you read the, the way it's rendered in the ESV, it says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. What does the fellowship imply? I'm sorry? Yeah, a group of believers, exactly. Yeah, it, it's, uh, it's about shared relationship, isn't it? Uh, one connotes activity. When it says two fellowship... They devoted themselves to fellowship. It sounds like an activity. When, when you say they devoted themselves to the fellowship, that's, that's a collection of people, isn't it? That, those are shared relationships. And I think that's the correct interpretation of, of that Greek here. I think that what Luke is trying to tell us is that it's all about community. It's all about shared relationships. And that uh, to fellowship uh, implies activities and uh, the fellowship implies a, a shared relationship. And that's, that's one of the distinctives of biblical community, that, um, that biblical community, one of, the, one of the defining marks, if you will, of biblical community is that it includes fellowship based on shared relationships with God and, and with each other. And that's what the Apostle John said as well. In uh, John 1, 1 John 1, 3, he says, What we have seen and heard we announce to you too, so that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Notice even in what John says here 
that the fellowship here is not about activity. In our culture, we think, well, fellowship, that means cookies and coffees after the service. No, really, it means the shared relationship that, that we have. It's, it's not about activity in John's uh, scripture here. It's about uh, close relationship and that communion that we have with each other because of our relationship with, with Christ. Mark number two is that biblical community is a, a spiritually organic community. That refers to the way it originates. A spiritually organic community that shares a common source of life. That life is Jesus Christ. The heart of biblical community is understanding that we share a common life in Christ. Jerry Bridges uh, looks at it this way. He, he says, those first Christians of Acts 2, the ones we just read about, were not devoting themselves to social activities, but to a relationship. A relationship that consisted of sharing together the very life of God through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's what, that's what was transformational there. They understood that they had entered this, fellow, this relationship by faith in Jesus Christ, not by joining an organization. And they realized that their fellowship with God logically brought them into fellowship with each other. Through their union with Christ, they were, forming, they were formed into a spiritually organic community. You know, Paul elsewhere calls, it, calls the church the body of Christ, doesn't he? Notice he doesn't call it the organization of Christ, right? It's the body of Christ. It's an organic community. It's this spiritually organic relationship that forms the basis of true Christian community. It's not the fact that we're united in common goals or purposes that makes us a community. Rather, it's the fact that we share a common life in Christ. It's when we grasp this truth that we're in a position to to begin to understand true community. You see, folks, it's not just that we believe the same thing about Jesus. It's much more than that. It is that we share the common life of Christ. Once we come to faith in, in Christ, we're empowered with a supernatural kind of life. And that's what we share. That's the power that we share together. Uh, and that's the heart of our, our fellowship as a, as a koinonia. Paul commented on that too, the apostle, on, on the shared life of Christ in, in each of us. Um, those of us who have received him as our, our savior. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but get this, it's Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and, and gave himself for me. He says the same thing in a different way in Colossians 3 when he says, when Christ who is your life, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You see, your eternal life doesn't begin the day you die. Your eternal life began the day you received Jesus Christ into your heart as your Savior. And, and suddenly you had a new, a supernatural source of life within you. That's the life that we share uh, together as believers in Jesus Christ. So mark number three is that biblical community is sharing with each other both the material and the spiritual gifts of God's grace. Acts 2 tells us that as believers were transformed, they had not only a new relationship with each other, but they had a new relationship with their possessions, didn't they? It says in 44 and 45, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Poverty there was intense in that culture. And, and there were many people who were quite literally starving to death. The dead were left on the streets in, in the Roman culture or dragged off and piled up someplace uh, because uh, mortality was, the, the mortality was so high. 
there. People, people quite literally starved to death. There were, not, there were not the safety nets there are now. And so many were in need. The Acts 2 believers recognized that God had, where God gave them access, beyond their needs in other words, it was to share with those in need. It wasn't to consume uh, for themselves. And that early Christian generosity really distinguished the early church. It was one of the marks of the early church that, that others found in, incredible. And in fact, uh, one of the Romans, a uh, satirist named uh, Lucian, uh, commented on it specifically. He said, The earnestness with which the people of this religion help one another in their needs is incredible. They spare, they spare themselves nothing for this end. Their first lawgiver, that is Jesus, put it into their heads that they were all brethren. Imagine that. Well, we not only share material things, but in a, in a biblical community we share from what God is teaching us. And so uh, Paul says in Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. In other words, we all teach each other. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Everybody shares from what God is teaching them. From your personal time with God, uh, God gives you things to share with someone else to build them up and, and to encourage them. We're all teachers in that sense. The Holy Spirit will use us in that way to speak into each other's lives. That's why in a, in a biblical community, in a koinonia, it's not uncommon to ask, well, what has God been teaching you lately? What have you been learning from the Lord lately? Uh, author J.I. Packer uh, says that we share what God is teaching us to, to enrich those around us and to build their faith. He says, it is first a sharing with our fellow believers the things that God has made known to us about himself in the hope that we may thus help them to know him better and so enrich their fellowship with him. That's what building each other up is all about. God shares with us as individuals. We share with each other and with the larger church, and we build each other up in that way. That's what the body of Christ is supposed to be doing. Mark number four uh, that makes us distinctive from other kinds of communities is that uh, biblical community or, or koinonia makes us partners with God and, and with each other in the spread of the gospel. The Apostle Paul called the Philippian believers his, his partners in spreading the good news. He said, For you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you heard it until now. And when you read the whole uh, context, what he's talking about is he's thankful for the, the financial gifts they've given. He's thankful for their ongoing prayer. If you look at Paul's writings, uh, every church he founds, he, he, he always uh, asks them to continue for him in prayer. He, he knows that uh, prayer is the most important work of the church. It releases God's power into situations. But he goes even further than that. He, in the letter of Corinthians, he describes us, you and me, as, uh, as emissaries, as ambassadors for Christ. He says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, don't just keep it to yourself. That is that in in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us, you and me, the message of, of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. For God is making his appeal through us. And this is the appeal. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in, in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
So believers in biblical communities in, in Koinonia take seriously their responsibility as ambassadors to, to share what God has done in, in our lives with the people that, in the network of relationships that God brings to us in our workplace, in our, in our home, and in our school, wherever it is. Mark number five. The, the biblical community has a supernatural capacity, a supernatural capacity to, to redeem a corrupt and a hostile culture. That was certainly true in that time. Uh, their culture was much more hostile than ours is right now. Uh, but uh, a number of us sense a growing hostility toward Christianity in our culture too. But um, the, the koinonia, the, the, holy communi- the uh, community of faith, empowered by the Holy Spirit, has the capacity to redeem a corrupt and hostile culture. And the first century church was um, in a seemingly impossible situation in terms of the culture of that time. Uh, difficult social situations. They're, they were thrust into an urban environment about 10 years after Jesus' death. Uh, the church was really thrust into an, in, an urban ministry environment uh, in densely populated cities. Uh, Joel Comiskey describes the Greco-Roman cities of the time. He says, The Greco-Roman cities were usually filthy and overpopulated. Homelessness, poverty, and violent ethnic strife were common. The cities were a melting pot of ethnic diversity. In addition to the physical misery, Greco-Roman cities suffered from social chaos, high mortality rates, and a constant influx of immigrants. But God used even that overpopulation and the difficult social circumstances of the time to spread the gospel explosively. Cities like Antioch and Rome were, were, were densely populated. And when I say densely populated, uh, don't think Lansing, think Calcutta. Uh, and it was even... It was even worse than that. The, the uh, population of Antioch, for example, was about 100,000 people, the ar- archaeologists tell us, but they were crammed into a space a mile wide by two miles long. So that, was, uh, that equates to about 130 people per acre, uh, which is significant overcrowding. But Rome was even worse with about 300,000 people per acre. Uh, don't bother to do the math. I've already done that. That's about... Uh, a 12 by 12 space per person in the whole city. Now, you didn't have that much living space uh, because people lived in much smaller spaces. Um, but one, one writer said, uh, if you're going to try to visualize this, think of a beach with sand as far as you can see, and, and on, on every space within that, every available space within that beach, there is a towel, and on that towel, there is a, a person. That, that's how crowded these cities were. That's, that's uh, the environment that uh, God used to penetrate uh, the, with the gospel and, and to spread his church and, and grow it explosively. Many did not own homes there. They, they lived in apartment blocks, and many of them were made of mud and, and timber. They were prone to fire and to collapse. There were many such disasters, and, and rent was expensive. Rent, in, rent for one uh, small apartment, which was essentially one room, was about 40 denarii a month. And uh, a day worker at the time made about one denarii a month. So you see, uh, one person could not sustain a household with the income of, of the day. And that forced extended families to share the same space. And sometimes uh, multiple families and, and others in, in the same space uh, just to extend the resources and pool their, their money. New Testament scholar Wayne Meeks uh, comments on the uh, the expectation of privacy. He says, 
Privacy was rare in such small houses in a dense area. For instance, in Rome, most people lived in small apartments called insulae, in poor conditions with a high rental fee. Most people lived on streets and sidewalks. They didn't even live in their house. They lived on streets and sidewalks. The house was for sleeping and storing one's belongings. Privacy was not possible for the ordinary person. Life happened in front of the neighbors. Enter the the oikos, the church in the house. Oikos in Greek means household. The house church at this time, the house church was the primary vehicle that God used to to expand and to grow his church and to penetrate that society with the gospel. There were no church buildings at the time. Many of you know that for 300 years after the death of Christ, there were no church buildings like this one. Uh, People gathered in these oikos, these household churches, and they were interconnected uh, across the city. So an oikos church would typically be from 12 to 30 people. They were essentially a small group including the head of the house, his or her children, their family, their extended family, any slaves or servants, sometimes business associates or or neighbors. That would be an oikos. That would be the church in the house. And that's where that term came to be for for 300 years. And it could be a, a very diverse group in terms of race and gender and social status and wealth. And so, you see, God used that. In retrospect, we can see now that God used that structure, the social conditions of the times. He even, even used the structure of the oikos with all those people thrown in together in, in the same, in the same uh, house church in, in order to penetrate the gospel through the various social strata. Uh, because when slaves went to the marketplace and talked with other slaves, uh, they talked about Jesus Christ. And, and when merchantmen went to the, the marketplace to do business with each other, they talked about Jesus Christ. And that, that's the way that God uses that, so, used that social structure at the time to penetrate a society with the gospel. And that's one of the reasons why it grew so explosively. Ray Stedman writes about the, the transformational power of the gospel. That is, the power of God expressed through the oikos, the, the house church, and the way that transformed society. He said, as Jesus transformed people, they behaved differently within their oikos relationships. Husbands loved wives, and that was countercultural in that Roman culture. Slaves were treated with dignity, again, countercultural. Married partners submitted to one another, and loved reigned supreme. Friends and neighbors were drawn to this new transformed community. The main evangelistic outreach was the attractiveness of the community life that the early believers projected. People could see the changes up close as community life was lived out in the open. You couldn't have a hymn sing or a Bible study or a worship service without everybody around you knowing what was going on because people were living right on top of each other. Your neighbors would wander in or they could hear exactly what you're doing. So there was no secrecy about uh, your life with God. The attractiveness of the new called-out society spread through the Mediterranean world. When people noticed how lives were changed and how the believers bonded together, they believed the gospel message. Christians would gather together in homes to instruct one another, study, pray, and use their spiritual gifts. Their pagan neighbors witnessed that Christ had established a new order, one based on love and caring relationships. You see, the attractiveness of that community life, uh, a life of transformed people, was what drew other people who did not yet know Christ, drew them into that community. They, They belonged before they believed. They were attracted by the transformation they saw in the lives of their neighbors. 
and they came to Christ because of it. And that's also what allowed the New Testament church to flourish in that, in that hostile environment because believers walk the talk. They walk the talk. This is how Justin Martyr, he was an early writer and a defender of Christianity, this is how he described it. He said, we who used to value the acquisition of wealth and possessions more than anything else now bring what we have into a common fund. We share it with anyone who really needs it. We used to hate and destroy one another and refuse to associate with people of another race or country. Now, because of Christ, we live together with such people and we pray for our enemies. You see how, how it was transformational? At the time. So how did Christians behave toward each other that transformed the world? What did that, what did that look like? Well, it's all about, it's all about one another. It's, it's about what biblical community looks like lived out. Apostle Paul's description of the, the former lifestyle and the transformation of his church members in, in Corinth is in, instructive here, I think. Keep in mind that, that he's talking to people within his own church. Uh, these, these were church people that he's talking to. He said, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And, by the way, such were some of you, he's saying. These were the folks in, in his church. But you were washed. Now he talks about their transformation and how that happened. He says, you were washed. That is, washed with the blood of Christ. Christ shed his blood for you, and as a result, your, your sins are forgiven. You're cleansed from that. He, he says, you were sanctified. That is, you've been declared holy because you received Christ as your Savior. Uh, you've been declared holy, and your standing before God is that you're holy. And, and on top of that, uh, the Holy Spirit is, is working that sanctification into your life. In other words, uh, in your experience, you're becoming progressively more holy over time. You're becoming more like Christ over time as the Holy Spirit works in your life. And, and finally, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ because of what Jesus has done. God has declared you not guilty once and for all time. Now, do you suppose these folks were perfect people at this time? Not at all. Not at all. I, I'm sure that they suffered relapses and they had to be corrected. But that, that's the whole point. If you look at, at 1 Corinthians 6 there, the whole chapter, he's talking about, okay, you've been redeemed. You're declared not guilty. And, and now God, is, God wants to bring your experience into line with how he sees you as holy and righteous. And so you need to let that happen. This is what that life looks like if, if you allow God to do that in your, in your life. Paul's church was made up in Corinth of folks who were a work in progress, right? They were a work in progress. God had extended grace to him. Um, are, are we a work in progress? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, this uh, church should be a model of, uh, of grace. And um, I, I, I love to say that it's, uh, the church is not, a, it, it's not uh, a country club for holy people. It's an ER for broken people. It's an ER for broken people, and we're all broken people. All declared not guilty because of what Jesus has done. You notice that the power of their testimony uh, as God's koinonia at the time was not in their sinless perfection, was it? No, it, it wasn't. It, it was in Christ's love 
that was inside them and that they lived out uh, toward each other in the same fellowship, in, in the same koinonia, in that same faith community. And the same thing is, the same thing is true here. The, the, the power of our testimony will not be in our sinlessness, in our perfection, uh, but rather in the way that we allow Christ's love to come out in our lives, in the way that we relate to each other, the way that we relate to people outside. After all, Jesus said, by this will everyone know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. We're to, we're to project his, his love and, and his grace. So this is Paul telling imperfect people, this is how you live as, as redeemed people. That's what the one another's are all about. And I've, I've just selected an, a number of them from the New Testament, but there are many more uh, in, the, in the various epistles. He says, uh, first of all, be at peace with one another. In other words, choose to be at peace. Love one another in, in words and in deeds. Uh, love in, in the New Testament is always a command. It's, it's never a command to feel. It's never, I, I want you to feel love toward each other. No, it's not about that. It is about acting in loving ways uh, toward each other. Tangible demonstrations of the love of Christ. Be devoted to one another. Honor one another. Live in harmony with one another. Stop passing judgment on another. In, in other words, extend grace to each other just as God extended grace to you and me. Accept one another. Instruct one another. Greet one another. Serve one another. Carry one another's burdens. How would that happen? What would that look like in this body? How, would we, how do we carry each other's burdens here? Again, this is the audience participation portion. I'm sorry? Helping one another? Absolutely, yes. Uh, through prayer. Prayer is a powerful way to release God's power into somebody else's life. Yeah, what else? Giving a ride to somebody who needs a ride. Yeah, that, there's a simple way. It doesn't have to be anything spectacular, does it? Sometimes it's helping people financially who are in a difficult spot, just as they did in the Acts 2 church. Whether you, whether you get a, a tax deduction for it or not, right? Yeah. Um, and sometimes it's just coming alongside somebody and uh, putting your arm around their shoulders and just encouraging them when you know they're going through a difficult time. Being, being there for somebody is so therapeutic. That's part of bearing each other's burdens. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgive one another whether or not you're, you're asked to forgive. Speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The first part of that verse says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And, and then he says, speak to each other. In other words, uh, teach each other out of what God is teaching you. Submit to each other. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In humility, consider others better than yourself. Teach one another. Admonish one another. Admonish means to advise or urge someone earnestly. Encourage one another. Build one another up. Spur one another toward love and good deeds. In other words, be a cheerleader. Uh, um, when you, see it, when, when you see someone acting like Christ, be a cheerleader for that. Do not slander one another. Gossip is a form of slander. It's destructive to what we're trying to accomplish in the body of Christ. It has no uh, place in koinonia. Don't grumble against one another, Paul says. Uh, confess your sins one to another. Now, that's not necessarily open mic time, but it is, what, it, what it means is that there, there is someone in your world that you entrust enough that you can one-on-one 
uh, confess to them where you, where you fail and what God has to forgive you for. And, and they can do that with you as well. That's part of the sanctification process. Pray for one another, the, impo- the most important work of the, of the church, releasing God's power into those situations. If indeed you, don't, uh, you are not yet on the, the prayer list at New Hope, and in other words, uh, there, there are well over 100 people that receive emails on prayer needs at New Hope right now. If you're not on there yet, you can send a simple message to prayer at newhopehazlet.com. Prayer at newhopehazlet.com. And Chris will put you on the list. You'll receive those things, and, and you can join us in prayer. Now, this whole list of one another's, it's hard for me to uh, help uh, you grasp just how countercultural this was at the time. The Roman, the Roman uh, society at the time was, uh, it was cold and harsh and brutal and selfish. And uh, that's why the church, transformed by the love of Jesus Christ, was just such a different animal. They hadn't seen anything like it before. And it, it made it so powerful in, in terms of uh, touching other people's lives and, and drawing them to faith. That's what Koinonia was about. And uh, it was that way then, uh, and it can be that way again now. We, we have the same fellowship. We have the same power of the Holy Spirit. And, and so uh, one of the things we'd like to do at New Hope is kind of take the next step toward recapturing some of that same, uh, that same uh, oikos quality or the same... A small group community. In the recent, uh, we did a, a transformational church assessment tool, some of you remember, back in the spring. One of the things we learned from that was that about 90% of you would like to be involved in some kind of small group experience. And so we're going to implement a small group ministry strategy this fall called uh, Oikos Groups, interestingly enough. It has nothing to do with yogurt. And, and you will not have to eat yogurt if you go to one of these groups. Oikos, of course, is the church in the house, right? The church in the house. So the, the purpose is to provide a, a smaller and, and more intimate setting for spiritual growth. Uh, a small group tends to accelerate uh, spiritual growth and the formation of close relationships. It's about doing life together and uh, developing those, those closer relational connections that many of you have asked about. And also uh, to allow the opportunity to, to identify and develop and to practice your spiritual gifts. Every one of you who is a follower of Jesus Christ has a unique spiritual gift that God has gifted you with and, and that, uh, that he'd like you to use uh, in, in the body of Christ to, to benefit the other believers here. And so you have an opportunity to discover that. A lot of that happens best in a smaller group than, than we can do on Sunday morning. But these groups are not intended to displace the men's studies, the women's studies that we have now. Uh, or the Sunday morning worship services, for example. And there will be different kinds of groups. So there will be some uh, couples groups, and there will be some that will be a mix of couples and singles of various ages. Um, And I think you'll find those groups will have the same power to transform lives and impact our community as as in the New Testament church. There are some core principles that we think are important in, in those little oikos communities at New Hope. And, and the first one is that the mission... Uh, the purpose, if you will, is, is the spiritual formation of disciples of Jesus Christ. That's what we're about here is bringing people to maturity and then helping them get to the place where they can in turn make other disciples. The, the purpose of the church, according to our Constitution, is this. The purpose of this church is to glorify God by producing maturing followers of Jesus Christ through the four scriptural principles of learning, loving, worship, and prayer. And so Oikos groups are intended to help make mature disciples 
who can then make other disciples. The word of God and the prayer and uh, the Holy Spirit, uh, reliance on the Holy Spirit will really be central uh, to those groups. They'll, they'll cultivate the, uh, deliberately the closer relationships that you can have in a small group setting uh, than what you can have in, in a, a larger group like this one Sunday morning, a celebration service like this. It, it's hard to make those close relational connections. Uh, groups will, will grow and, uh, and multiply as the, as the community life in that group attracts other people. You'll find that um, all, rela- all evangelism is relational, isn't it? And, and you'll find that, that um, there are people who uh, respect you and whom you have influence with. And, and when you are in a, in a group where you have those close relational connections, other people will be attracted to that. And, and it's a lower barrier for some people than it would be to invite them to a church service. It's a different kind of an experience. So you'll have people come to your group uh, for the relational connection before they're even Christians. Some people, remember this, some people need to belong before they can believe, right? Some people need to belong, be enfolded in that communal, communal uh, relationship of, of uh, love and, and uh, close interaction, and, and then over time they come to faith in, in Christ. And so those groups we anticipate will, will grow and, and multiply. We're going to train group leaders in, in the principles of effective uh, small group leadership because we want to be strategic and deliberate and consistent about what we're doing there. And, and then finally, those Oikos groups will be, will be missional in the sense that we're going to ask them periodically to engage together in service, both, both inside the church and, and outside the church, demonstrating the love of Christ in a tangible way as a group. That's part of the spiritual formation process. Part of the, the way that we grow into the image of Jesus Christ is by serving together, right? So uh, that, that will include that opportunity as well. <clears throat> so the next steps in the process are, are really to identify and, and train the, the group leaders. Then we'll know what kinds of groups we can deploy and, and where. So uh, this is kind of a, a pitch, if you will, to those of you who... Uh, would consider being a small group leader. L- let me just set your mind at ease. You do not have to be a theologian in order to be a small group leader. Uh, really, the basic prerequisite is that, uh, <clears throat> is that you, you need to uh, want to grow in your relationship with God, and you want to help other people do that as well. The nuts and bolts of how to lead a, an effective small group, we can teach you that. Um, so I, I'd ask you to pray about this opportunity and, and think uh, whether God may be uh, calling you uh, to lead a small group. You don't have to host a group in your home in order to be a small group leader. That's a separate role. So if you, if you think you, you or you and your spouse might like to lead a group, l- let me know that. My contact information is in your program there. If, if you'd like to host a group in your home, let me know that as well. And, um, and then when we train those group leaders, uh, we'll deploy those, those groups. We'll let you know about that, those who are interested in becoming part of a group like this, developing those closer relationships, accelerating your spiritual growth from week to week and uh, month to month. And, and um, you'll hear much more about that as we go forward. Let me just, uh, let me just challenge you. Uh, you know, as somebody who's, uh, who's getting a little bit older, uh, I have a sense of urgency about life. And, and at the same time, I, I recognize that, uh, that the biggest obstacle to engaging in spiritual growth opportunities for all of us is, is sometimes the pace of life, all that we have coming at us, all the activities that we're involved in. So I'm just going to ask you to think critically 
about uh, where you're investing your, your time. Jesus said, be careful to invest both your time and your resources for eternity. You know, where your heart is, there, there will your treasure be also, he said. And, and um, I'm just going to encourage you to think about the various commitments of time that you have and, and how much of that time will make a difference beyond your life. How much of that time that you're investing right now will make a difference in something that matters for eternity? This opportunity of being part of an Oikos group at New Hope will make a difference in your life and in the lives of people around you for eternity. So I'm going to ask you to seriously consider being a part of that and even perhaps leading a group, but at least being a part of a group uh, and, and seeing what God will do with that in your life. It's a question of priorities. You know, you can reach the end of your life and have it be busy and full and realize that you had the ladder up against the wrong wall. A lot of people do that. And I don't want that for any of us. Let's pray, shall we? Dear Father, I thank you for these folks and for their desire to know you. And, and we ask that uh, you would impress on our hearts what you have in mind for each of us. And that uh, you would draw those people that you desire to lead small groups or to host a group in their home or to be a part of a, an Oikos group here at New Hope. And we pray that you'd use those groups um, to mold us and shape us further into the image of Jesus Christ, your Son. And that you'd also use them as a powerful uh, way to, to connect with those in this community who do not, do not yet know Christ. I know, Father, from the census data that there are 40,000 people in Meridian Township. That's just Meridian Township. And, and many of those folks do not yet know Jesus Christ. But there are our neighbors and there are our co-workers. They're the people we shop with and, and all the rest. And, and so we pray that, that you'd give us a passion for those people who do not yet know you and that you'd position us and equip us to touch their lives for the sake of the gospel and uh, bring them to a place where they know Jesus Christ is their Savior too. Thank you for all that you're doing here in these lives. I ask you to bless these folks this week and, and empower them for what you've called them to do in their workplace and in their school and in their home. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.